that is where pain, stress, and trauma meet. It meets at an anatomical, biologic level because of what the body does with the dump of uh, chemicals when we have a stressful thing, as well as what our body does posturally and our breathing pattern that account for that sympathetic nervous system response. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I'm Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Beth Gende will talk about the connection between stress, trauma, and pain. Beth is a physical therapist with over 34 years of experience, and she is the course instructor, the role of trauma in chronic pain, maximizing our skill set for mind-body healing through APTA Academy of Pelvic Health. I hope you enjoyed the show. PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Hi, Dr. Beth. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I am good. Thank you very much. Awesome. So let's get started and just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your career, and how did you get to where you are right now? Okay, well, thank you for having me first off. And uh, I became a, I've been a PT for about 34 plus years. Um, and I started out uh, in basically like a lot of people in outpatient orthopedics. And at that point, I was very young. I had two women that saw me that had really um, horrific pain, um, like we see a, a lot of times. But these uh, two women were really instrumental in, in really driving me to look a lot more into, and in a lot more depth into what causes pain um, because of their histories and their stories. Um, I went through and did a lot of things over the past 34 years. I often say I'm a jack of all trades and master of none, but I did a lot of different things in, with patients with neurologic diagnosis, orthopedics, sports, pediatrics. And what I found was that everybody breathed and everybody had basically no one ever saw me having a good day. Nobody ever saw me on their best day. In fact, as therapists, we usually see people on some of their worsts. And that is really when I got more into specializing in pelvic health, I realized that the stresses and traumas that we have in our lives are not associated with pelvic problems and really are influencing every single patient that we see because everybody's problem stems from usually or oftentimes a very bad event. And that is how I got where I am today. So where I'm at today is I work a lot with pelvic health. I treat men, women, and children that, and I have a high interest level. I think I don't like the word specialized um, in pelvic pain, but I treat anything that has to do with the pelvis. Um, but I also continue to treat general orthopedics, general neurologic diagnosis. And I'm always, and, and even a sports folk that run in there now and then. Um, and I'm always just always finding that learning about people and what is going on with them is very helpful in treating them as a holistic person. And so that's really what drove me to where I'm at today, 34 years later, after I had those two patients that started my wheels turning. 
Uh, to really look more in-depthly at people's pain. The opioid crisis, COVID, a lot of the things that are going on with our, a lot of just the societal stresses that are going on today, just kind of further firmed up my belief that as physical therapists, the mind-body connection is much stronger than sometimes I think we learn about in school. And we know, we all know that stress and trauma is connected somehow to pain. So that's why we want to talk more in depth today. So let's start talking about the differences and similarities between stress and trauma. Okay, well, I'm going to quote a really awesome physical therapist here. I'm pretty big into giving people their due. Um, But there's a great therapist named Tally Rosenbaum, and she is also a, a psychologist. I think it's a psychologist by degree psychologist as well. And she has a really great difference between them. She said a stress in your life is something that eventually you're going to get over. Okay. So we all get stressed about lots of different things, but eventually that particular stress is going to go away. It might be replaced by a new one, but that one's going to go away. A trauma, she defines, and I think this is a good definition, is a watershed event um, with life before and after that event being forever changed. So in effect, I was not who I was before that event occurred to me. Um, We sometimes uh, call PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, the kind of the ultimate trauma, and that's usually associated to death, death of others, or intense violence sexual assault, physical assault, things like that. Um, So that PTSD is trauma. But I also think that there are things that maybe aren't as, you know, aren't classified PTSD necessarily that still constitute a fairly significant watershed event in a person's life. And so I I really kind of look at things on that, those terms. Um, That said, I think both continual stress or multiple changing of stresses and traumas and PTSD all have effects on pain. Absolutely, I agree with you. So let's let's talk a little bit more about how they are connected. So how the pain and the stress and trauma are connected. Well, that, that starts into a lot of the neuroanatomy that a lot of us kind of learned it. We're like, yeah, I got it for the test. And then we kind of went, woo, that went by the wayside. Um, So it really starts on the fight or flight versus the rest and digest autonomic nervous system response. So we all know we have that, and I call it a seesaw. All through our day, those two systems should be bouncing back and forth. You know, somebody cuts you off, sympathetic goes up, you chill out, parasympathetic goes back down, it should go like this. We have a great measure of that called heart rate variability, which we are only starting to tap into. And that is a whole nother discussion. But there is a way to measure. I think that's really important. Autonomic nervous system health. And that is heart rate variability. So whenever we get a stress, our autonomic nervous system initially responds by the amygdala, which is our emotional brain, sending messages to the hypothalamus, basically saying, oh, my gosh. You've got to get prepped. Something bad is going to happen. And that happens in all species. And so we get a dumping of a bunch of different hormones that go, or chemicals that go into our system to prep every single system for an emergency. Um, And that's called the HPA 
access or, or the uh, hypothalamal pituitary uh, adrenal gland access. So cortisol increases, glucose increases, blood sugars go up, digestion decreases, heart rate increases, blood pressure increases, all these things, and muscle tension increases. We start to really, you know, really get um, our extremities ready, muscular standpoint, to move. Um, the other thing is we also go into a protective response. So if you ever see anybody get frightened or scared, they, they hunch, they clinch down because they're getting ready to protect. Something bad is coming. And so that is what happens when we get a stress. When we have a trauma, that also happens. Um, and so in both situations, all that stuff starts to occur. The difference is that that system should reorient itself when the stressor is over. And in many situations, the, si the system does not go back. Our seesaw does not stabilize. We have our hyper kid up and our rest and digest kid low. And so we get a continual pounding of high glucose, high cortisol, all these things going in. Now, if said stress was linked to an injury, then I think we need to realize that when you start to talk about that injury, those people start, that starts to, they start to get amped up about that, about that again. And we see that when we talk to patients. Also, if they've had a quality of life change as the result of an injury, they are a little amped up. And we've seen these folks. We've seen these folks from, I mean, if we can imagine for a second, we have somebody, you have an athlete who is, and I'm thinking of, you know, some, I'll morph the case scenarios, but, you know, young soccer player, the, you know, the last game of high school career goes out to stop. She's the goalie goes out to stop a ball, shatters her ankle and knows, you know, there goes my scholarship. That's a life-changing event. I know nobody died, but that's a life-changing event when you're 18 years old and our muscles and our nervous system, if we don't reorient that seesaw are going to continue to throw those muscles into overdrive. And we are going to make postural compensations in an effort to continue that pair, that sympathetic nervous system response. So what do we see clinically? We often see people that are withdrawn. We see people that are scared. We see the people that posturally adjust because of that pain and or the emotions associated with that pain. We see this in our patients that have strokes. We see that in our athletes that get injured. We see that in our people that are in car accidents. We see that all the, the whole range to our people that are sexually assaulted, our people that have gunshot wounds, all of those folks. And we look at these diagnoses and we process them as therapists, but we kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, they got shot. Mm, that, that stinks. Oh yeah, car accident, got another car accident in today. But we have, I think as therapists, we need to understand those people's muscles may still be reacting. And what sometimes we perceive as, uh, malingering or not getting with the program or not taking responsibility may be an altered anatomic nervous system state, either way hyped up. So they're still in fight or flight or frozen, which is your alternate. That's kind of your between states, just not, they're literally paralyzed. They're afraid to move. And how many people do we have that don't understand pain? They are where they are because something bad happened and they had a very bad pain. So every time they get any 
pain, they go right back to, it must be something that's killing me. And I think that that is where pain, stress, and trauma meet. It meets at an anatomical, biologic level because of what the body does with the dump of uh, chemicals when we have a stressful thing, as well as what our body does posturally and our breathing patterns, which we'll get into in a few minutes, that account for that sympathetic nervous system response. Did that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. And a lot of questions coming. So uh, how can we, before I ask you what to do with this imbalance, just let's talk about uh, how this um, elevated sympathetic nervous system uh, affects the MSK performance. So you said that people get more tightened, they close, they uh, have problems with breathing. So how does it affect the MSK? Well, the first thing is that um, you start to use your support breathing muscles. So if somebody says, I'm going to take off my jacket for this. If somebody says there's a lie, you know, the old analogy, a lion comes in the room. But if you have a stress, you need to run away from something. The first thing you do is your accessory breathing muscles, our scalenes, our upper traps, our levator scapulae, all those accessory breathing muscles go into overdrive to get us ready to move forward and away from the problem. Um, so we actually get decreased diaphragm performance. When we get stuck there, we continue to use these muscles. So we actually never get good core control as a result. And I think when we discuss core in, when we always discuss core, um, we forget that the core has a roof and that's the diaphragm. And the core has a base, and that's the pelvic floor. And the pelvic floor is not for pelvic floor therapists. You don't have to know how to palpate it in order to treat it, okay? And so I think what, you know, what the normal performance of the pelvic floor would be is when we take a deep breath in diaphragmatically. Now, this is not belly breathing. We should, none of us should look pregnant breathing. But when we actually get costal expansion, so... The, the ribs come out, they up to the front slightly, flare slightly and come to the back slightly, that diaphragm inverts. As the diaphragm inverts, as we inhale, the pelvic floor lengthens. When we exhale, they both come up. When we exhale forcefully, they really come up and the abdominal muscles tighten in. That actually is the reason we have our abdominals is eccentric inhale, and concentric exhale. So when we've screwed up our diaphragmatic pelvic floor piston, because we have always breathing like an elevator, so that in essence just screws up our entire core. So we keep trying to strengthen core, but we never get the basement or the roof. And you've got to reestablish the basement and the roof. The other thing of interest is the vagal nerve goes through the diaphragm. And what does the vagal nerve do? It's the parasympathetic nervous system pacifier. So when we do diaphragmatically breathe, there is some research to suggest that we do get some stimulation of that vagal nerve, which can help to drop, to reestablish our seesaw of sympathetic parasympathetic. So answer to the question, the first thing I do is teach people to breathe. And that involves lots of stuff. Because if they've been breathing poorly for a long time, 
their thoracic spine might be not be as mobile as it should be to allow for costal expansion. So you have to mobilize, like you have to look at the thoracic spine. Maybe their psoas is really, really tight. Guess what? Psoas goes up through the diaphragm. You better check their psoas length. Everybody gets stuck on hamstrings and gastrocs. They're important too. Check your psoas length. If psoas is tight, oftentimes we have glute insufficiency in people, and that's a huge driver for back pain. So you can go all the way down the chain with this if we had hours on end. But that's where I start. And that's usually what people ask me is, where do you start? Musculoskeletally, that's where I start. I start with the the anatomy of breathing. So... To improve this elevated sympathetic nervous systems in terms of treatment, let's see if I got it right. You said that you start with the breathing, right? Um, And then look at the thoracic, maybe do some thoracic mobilizations if you feel it's really stiff. Um, And then you say, check the psoas and then the gluteus. Is that right in terms of treatment? That's how you started so we can just give the PTs a general idea of what to do in these cases, because I think that everybody knows they are connected, pain, stress, and trauma. But at the same time, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to effectively help them. So just we can help our audience here in practical terms. If you would describe a treatment to help in that type of situation, that's what you would do? That is what I do. And the other the thing I do is I really talk to the patients about, I mean, I think that um, Dr. Lowe's research, uh, pain neuroscience is very relevant, um, but I think we can do better um, in addition to explaining that and showing that little video from Australia that they do. Um, I think that we can do better. I think we need to explain to patients, look, I need to teach you how to do this again. I mean, I kind of think it's funny that we spend all this time teaching how somebody how to activate their VMO. There's like a lot of muscles involved in breathing. We have a lot to work on there. Okay. So yes, I put my hands on them. I do some quick stretching through the dot through the rib cage and I show them, I, you know, check the thoracic spine. I talk about uh, scapular retraction and in order to get, you know, better extension through that. Um, and so that's where I, I start. I really take a look at their posture. I take a, and, and I take a look at how they're breathing and I talk to them about the muscles they're using. I have them actually walk and breathe and see how well that goes. Um, Cause sometimes people will just hold their breath or I ask them, when I ask them to do the movements that are painful, I check, are you holding your breath when you do that movement? And then let's try breathing through that movement and let's see. So it's a lot more than take a deep breath. And I really try to get to therapists. You don't just tell people take a deep breath. People don't know how to take a deep breath. It's your job to teach them how to take a deep breath. And it's your job to know that it's thoracic spine, it's lumbar spine, it's psoas movement. It's, you know, is, you know, you know, that, but that's, that's where I start. And then and if you get the diaphragm, if you get some good costal expansion, your pelvic floor will start to move again. And that's often very stuck in people that have very high stress, trauma, PTSD situations. I think it's interesting that research tells us that 50% of uh, people with uh, back pain also have PTSD. So that's crazy. Um, so talking about pelvic health, that I think for traditional PT, like we, the ones that treat more orthopedic problems, we are more scared about pelvic because that's not like 
our specialty area. So what do you do more specifically to the pelvic floor? Because you're talking about the core and how important is the pelvic floor in that situation. So do you do anything specific to pelvic floor or just as a consequence of breathing, it improves too? Well, I usually let people know that the pelvic floor will lengthen, um, not relax. Nobody wants organs falling out. The pelvic floor will lengthen just like any other muscle lengthens. Your bicep lengthens. Pelvic floors will lengthen um, in uh, positions where you get your ischial tuberosities to move apart. And so deep squat, um, there, are some, uh, po there are some positions that are attributed to yoga, um, but are not necessarily yoga, but yoga does them. But like the happy baby yoga pose, the child's uh, pose in yoga, anything where you um, kind of have, or even just bringing these up to chest like this and breathing deep, taking a diaphragmatic breath is going to help to lengthen that pelvic floor. Interestingly, one of the deepest pelvic floor muscles is obturator internus, which is basically your baby sister to piriformis. So, you know, we all talk about piriformis all the time. You know, piriformis lies right over that. So pelvic floor is embedded in your hip and, and back muscles. So just talking to patients about the fact that, you know, here's a roof, here's a basement, you know, your pelvic floor muscles are part of you. They should get longer. They should get shorter. If we do this breathing, if we try not to hold our breath during transitional movements, we're going to have healthier range of motion of that muscle group. And if that's all you talk to your patients about, and that's what you, you incorporate that essence and deep, you know, start to do squatting, start to get them in positions, which maybe get those ischial tuberosities out apart working on a, the therapy ball, the Swiss balls with just dissociating the pelvis and uh, hip dissociation movements back and forth of the knees gets that pelvic floor to start to move a little bit. Just some things like that can get to the pelvic floor without you ever touching the pelvic floor. I, I don't palpate the pelvic floor in 75% of my pelvic floor patients on the first or second visit. I do all this other stuff first. Sometimes you don't have to then. Yeah, I think that's good and just um, helps PTs to understand that they don't have to do that to be to be improving the pelvic health. So they don't have to necessarily do something specific as sometimes we think about, about pelvic health. <laughs> uh, right, right. You don't. Yeah, you don't have to. In fact, I just tell people you have, you have, you know, I so sometimes tell clinic patients, if your patients seem squirrely, tell them, hey, look, you got, you got a basement, you got a roof, you got a front, sides and back to your core house. We're going to work on all of them and leave it at that. Yeah. Yes, that's great. And how do you know that your treatment is being effective on, um, in that way? Like you said that you can measure uh, heart rate vari variability. Is that right? So. I mean, how can we, in simple terms, how can we know that we are being effective in the treatment using these techniques? I think that when we talk to our patients, A, about how breathing and how um, the word mindfulness gets thrown around a lot, but anybody that has chronic pain, you know, that's starting to be a big buzzword. So what I tell patients is to spend five minutes every day and practice their breathing muscles that I teach them. If they're doing that, and I actually give them a pain control menu. So like if you're in pain, 
here is a list of things that I want you to pick some things off this menu to try and tell me if that helps your pain. What, the first one is always diaphragmatic breathing and down training or, met, or whatever you want, mindfulness, whatever word you want to call, but I also will have certain stretches or different things like that. You know, asking patients, are you functioning better? You know, I mean, your basic, you measure, if you can't measure their heart rate variability, which you can't measure in anybody unless they have a very expensive eye watch um, at this point. But uh, if, if they are having improved ability to control their painful symptoms using the techniques you gave them, then you are getting somewhere. And those are how I write my goals is that the patient will be able to verbalize use of, you know, two to four pain management strategies and decrease their pain to be able to do the dishes for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever the the baseline is. But that's how, you know, the other thing I do is I look at, I'll do postural reassessments on people and you can measure how well people are breathing by just putting a tape measure around their postal area and having them take a deep breath in. I guarantee you, if they're breathing like an umbrella, that measurement's not moving. If they're taking a deep breath in and using their diaphragm, that measurement's moving. You could see it on me and this is a video. So if you want a real objective thing, you can always use the tape yeah, measure. So that's, but, something, you know, that's an awesome tip. It's super simple. Anyone can do it and you just see that they are moving. So I like that. Very good. Yes. Um, yes. So talking about pain management, uh, I know you mentioned the opioid addiction before. So how is that related, this addiction related to all these pain and trauma and, and stress that it is so common today? Well, we're, we're at the opioid addiction because we tried to, not we, but um, there was an attempt to control all pain medically. Um, and so all pain can't be controlled medically. And so I think PTs play a huge role in making sure people, A, don't get addicted to opioids. So I always encourage therapists to talk to your patients post-op and be like, when's your hydrocodone prescription up? I need to know because before you get another prescription, let's talk about pain management strategies that you're going to use so we don't have to re-up that if possible. Um, secondly, so that's 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 the backside of opioid addiction. That's trying to make sure opioid addiction doesn't happen. And I think we play a really critical role in that. And I think that's where we do need to be implementing things like decreasing separate sympathetic nervous system response, et cetera, et cetera. Now, once we have opioid addiction, um, opioid addiction, on, uh, opioid addiction, according to uh, the research that I have done, which is pretty extensive because you have to do a lot of research when you do a course, but opioid addiction is um, very, very high in people that have sexual trauma or PTSD. So that is why I really think if you come across a patient and you're reading through their history and they have PTSD, and they've, they've been on hydrocodone, you've got to have red flags going off because those things go together. Um, so once we're at that place, I think it's a lot of patient education regarding the fact that what an opioid does is an opioid provides kind of uh, help hyperalgesia that eventually goes down. And so you're going to go through a rough patch while we try to figure out other ways for you to manage this pain. But I do think it's really 
in relationship to trauma, I think it's really a, a sad statistic that a very, very high population of opioid addiction is um, trauma and specifically sexual trauma. And so when you, if you do see that, I think as a therapist, if you're hitting a wall with a person rather than giving up on them, and if you do suspect, like if you find out that there's been a sexual trauma or a PTSD event in general, you know, maybe talk to them about seeing a public health person, you know, let's maybe not give up on people or whatever. There's lots, I mean, sometimes we do our best and that's, I think we all do our best, but do think that there might be something else going on with that person that might be influencing that back pain, um, especially if they have a history of addiction, of any addiction, but opioid certainly is where the research is. And I think it's important for us as physical therapists to identify these red flags and know that the chances are much higher of uh, developing an opioid addiction in that situation. So um, I think it's important to know also what to do because sometimes we, we do our best, but it's not in our hands. You're not specialized in that type of uh, mental health or uh, that type of situation, right? So how can we create a team support system for these patients? Uh, when do you know when to refer, who to refer to and all of that? I think that's a really good question because I really am a strong believer that we should be working in teams. Like we should, we should have a holistic team model because I always warn people that the minute you start to being a little more open-minded about trauma, people are just gonna start telling you about trauma. Um, and stressors. And a lot of times that's a big thing for us to deal with, especially if we have past history of ourselves and we're like, I got my own thing in line here. So um, I, I really do tell therapists, don't try to be the therapist, like the everything therapist, because you can't be. So what I usually do is I do try, like I've, I move a lot, I've moved a lot in my life. So I try to go through and connect with local social workers, um, uh, uh, the, uh, most states have like a sexual abuse hotline. A lot of states have, um, abuse, uh, whole, they, they have a whole network set up, um, we just don't know about it. And so I encourage people, you know, Google this stuff, get online, look at your state, look at your County, see who's doing what, um, even making phone calls to some, uh, you know, private people I've called like around and said, Hey, you know do do you do this at all? Um, suicide hotlines, things like that, have that information readily available to people uh, because that getting a getting a resource manual together for yourself so that you are not feeling like you're handling this alone. And every county, every state operates a little differently. If you go in to your particular state and start looking what's available, I think you will really be shocked if you start putting in things like resources for sexual trauma, resources for uh, PTSD, resources, you will start finding things that you can say to patients, look, it seems like, you know, you had a really awful thing happen to you here, whether it was sexual assault, whether it was a gunshot wound whether it was just a really bad car accident, whether it was a horrific miscarriage, whatever the case may be. Um, yes, eyebrows up. I've had people with back pain that had 
horrible stillborn births that traumatized them and ended up with back pain. So you, you know, start to look at and, and say to them, but I can't, you know, as far your sympathetic nervous system is like, you really need help talking this through it. And I can't be that person for you because that's not my degree, but I want to be part of your care. And I want to be the part that helps with the muscles. And I want to know that that mental health part is working with us. And so I'm going to give you these resources. And then you go to your referring provider and say, I'm not sure you're aware that this happened to this person, but I think it's influencing their pain. And I think they might have a, not a psychosomatic component. I think they have, you know, their auto, their, their nervous, their sympathetic nervous system is very high and they seem to have had a traumatic response and they need some help and they need some mental, they need some counseling. They need some help with this and approach from that. Is that helpful? Yes. And uh, about the counseling. So do you refer them to do like therapy counseling or do you have to talk to their doctor to let them refer them? Like, I usually tell the referring physician that I feel like, and I start off with like brass tacks. Like I'm like, sir, you referred Mary because of a horrific car accident. I'm not sure you realized that her boyfriend was killed in this car accident. This is a really traumatic event for her. And she has her, while well, she's, you know, doing well in therapy, um, physical therapy, her sympathetic nervous system is really, it's, it's extremely high. Her, I think that she really would benefit from talking with somebody. I think that would really help her use some of the the pain management techniques that we are working on if we had both sides of that for a more comprehensive care. And that's how I word it to the primary care physician. I have encouraged this. She may come to you if she needs a referral for her insurance. I wanted to let you know that this was my concern. But often people can seek that sort of thing out there for primary care, but I always let the referring provider know what I said. Yeah. And I think there is another barrier as a society because I think people have resistance to go and look for help counseling, especially men. I think it's really hard to, uh, they think it's just something for people that are crazy. So I, I noticed that, especially in the American culture, that is a big barrier. I'm from Brazil. So here people, I, at least people around me and men too, they do it, they don't. They don't have this restriction. Like this is like a taboo topic. Uh, so I think that makes things a little bit harder. It does. Men are men can, men can be tough on that front. Um, I often though, when I explain to them the science of it, and I'm like, you're like this. Do you feel like this? And they'll be like, I do feel like this. I'm like, okay. Do you want to feel like this again? And they'll be like, well, how's talking going to help with that? Uh, and I'm like, well, not talking has not helped with that. Talking might help. If it doesn't, it's been a few sessions, you know? Use science in your favor to help. I use science a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And I know you just mentioned a course. Um, so you teach a course on this topic, right? I teach a course, um, the unfortunately, unfortunately, or unfortunately, actually, fortunately, the Academy of Pelvic Health 
sponsors sponsored me to teach a course on this, but it's not just for pelvic health. The course's title is The Role of Trauma and Chronic Pain, Maximizing Our Skill Set for Mind-Body Healing. Um, another, they also have another course called Trauma-Sensitive Physical Therapy Care, and that's by uh, Tally Rosenbaum. Um, both courses are very different the way we approach it, but as I said earlier, uh, Dr. Rosenbaum's amazing. So, you know, all kudos to her course too. She is, she's great. Um, so we did contact the APTA to let them know that they were telling people we didn't have a trauma course in the APTA. We do. <laughs> it's just through the Academy of Pelvic Health, but it is not just for pelvic health therapists. That's just good to know if people that are listening to us, they want to go deeper in this topic, they know that they have few options to look for. So I'm going to make sure to put this information on the show notes so people can look it up um, and get some more information if they want to. Um, so let's transition to our final questions. What is your favorite resource of information? Do you have any books or specific papers that you like? I think a book that I read that's uh, probably pretty popular, a lot of people have heard of it, is um, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. And that is a, that's the ground setting work that discusses ACE scores, which is something that we didn't have to, we won't have time to get to in this, but ACE is Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, it's a great book. Um, and it is really was the ground setting book, I feel personally, on trauma. He discusses pain and trauma. I think it's super sad. He never discusses physical therapy. He discusses yoga, um, which is great. But he, he, I hope if he ever writes another book, we have come around enough that we are considered a valuable resource for trauma-informed pain. Um, but it's the body keeps the score and it's absolutely wonderful. The other thing I do is I keep, if you go onto pubmed.gov, which has a new name that you can still get to it at PubMed, um, you can do like a mesh search of chronic pain and trauma, and you can actually ask them to send you updates whenever new information comes around or new research studies come out and they send it, they, they drop right to your email. And so I do that with a number of different topics, but that way I'm always getting up-to-date research on topics of interest to me. And I think that's a great way to do that. Uh, I do know that there are several, uh, besides your podcast, which has been great, which I'm so happy I got tuned into. It's been wonderful. I'm trying to do all the back episodes. Uh, but there's some, there's other, uh, there's, there's other chronic pain. Uh, Tim Flynn does a podcast on chronic pain. He's an excellent resource. Um, I think that looking at those, those, those are probably my three, those sorts of things are probably my favorite things that I go to. There are several different Facebook groups that discuss trauma and pain that are for professionals. Um, I don't tend to go into groups that are patient focused because it's overwhelming. Um, but I do, you know, some of the, the more professional, the more professional ones are good. And uh, Mary Massery, if you've never heard of her, the Mary Massery courses on breathing are at what everybody should be taking, in my opinion. There's other breathing courses too, and they're probably great too. I only know her. But I really think that spending $250 on a breathing course is well worth the 250 bucks. Medbridge probably has some too. Um, taking a, a course on breathing is, I think, one of the things I would definitely recommend. Awesome. All great resources. And what would be the best advice you give to the clinicians that are starting their careers? 
um, listen really well and watch people when they talk. I think we're at a time in physical therapy where we're trying to see a gazillion people at once and it's really, really hard to focus on anything but the body part that the person's discussing. And I think it's up to us as clinicians to say, I'm not going to cross that line. I need to be better than that because I'm smarter than that. So I would tell new clinicians to really, really try to watch how people say things and to listen to how they answer your questions and to listen to those little things that they kind of say that you don't think were worth much, but might be because they might be giving you some insight. Um, I remember one of my first patients saying to me, oh yeah, I had this car accident 10 years ago and I've had this back pain ever since I had all this mesh and she went through every surgery she had everything. And she dropped in at some point in that huge conversation and I was pregnant. And I, w- and I remember stopping and the first question I asked her wasn't about any of the surgeries, but I said, what happened to the baby? I mean, that's huge. Did the baby live or die? Because that's going to affect everything else that happened after that. So, so can I do anything about that? No. Can I know that that probably really affected her muscles and how she reacts? Yes. And I think it's important to know that because I think that's how we learn to interact with patients connect with patients and get patients to trust us because we have listened to their story. Although sometimes you have to cut them off because they talk a lot sometimes, but you know, with boundaries, listen to their stories. Yeah. And I think that's a big challenge because the way that the the outpatient setting is, it's really hard. It is a challenge uh, for all of us. And even, even for acute care therapists, I mean, you see these people from these car accidents and ICU and your goal is to get them sitting up on the edge of the bed. And their goal is I almost just died. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I think we yeah. need to listen to their stories. Yes, absolutely. And um, final question, what personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to become a successful physical therapist? Um, I think to be successful, you need to learn boundaries in, and that's, I would have not said that to you 20 years ago, but I think a lot of us go into this profession because we want to help people and we really, really care and we're super empathetic. And then we burn out and die. Um, I think you need to learn to set boundaries and I think you need to have a lot of self-care. I think you need to be willing to take care of yourself. And that is what I would tell anybody going into this profession is learn to set boundaries and learn to take care of yourself. That said, you also, the second thing, would be be a good listener and always think out of the box always don't ever think you know it all and understand that no one knows it all we can't measure what we don't know and we don't know everything so even if the mri comes back and nothing's there that doesn't mean nothing's there we just haven't learned how to measure it yet so respect what your patient is saying um That doesn't mean you need to keep them for six years. That doesn't mean you're going to figure it out, but at least, but do respect the patient and what they're having to say. Yes. And I think that also us as physical therapists, it's very mentally and physical tiring um, when you see that many patients. So sometimes we forget that we also have to take care of ourselves. So I think that is a very important point. 
because we've been seeing so mm -hmm. many PTs just leaving clinical care. So I think that's very important as well. And so, uh, Beth, if people want to learn more about you, your work, or just want to connect with you, how they can find you? Well, I have a website, and it's uh, www.betterwayphysicaltherapy.com. Um, they can connect with me there. I have an a email, which you can put on, which you have, bgenday, G-E-N-D-A-Y, not J. Uh, at att.net. Um, you're more than welcome to, you know, get in touch with me there. My website's on Facebook and Instagram. You can always message me on those mediums as well. Um, and uh, and I, I, I don't post a lot on my personal web uh, Facebook page. So I always tell people, if you ask to be my friend, don't expect to see tons of stuff because I don't put tons of stuff. But I do, I'm involved with so many professional groups through Facebook that I, I get on there quite a bit. So if you send me something, I will be like, oh, okay, I'll see it. Um, but those are all probably, those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Um, and really, I don't mind if people get a hold of me. I don't charge for people to talk to me. I don't insist people buy things for me to talk to them. I think we really need to support each other. And I have been at this for 34 years and I'm happy to support anybody that wants to try to keep PT at, a, at the level it should be, which is awesome practitioners of health. That's awesome. Beth, I appreciate so much you taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us. I think it was a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot and I think that's a topic that we don't talk um, as much as we should about this. So I hope that we can help many other um, PTs. And I just appreciate you accepting my, my invitation to be here today. Oh, well, I, you flattered me. I, I, am, I, told my, I told all my kids, I'm like, you're gonna be on the podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I've done a lot of public speaking and I've done a lot of courses and taught courses and things, but I've never been on a podcast. So I'm really, really I was really thrilled. Awesome. The first time then is always the first time. So that's great. Yep. Thank you. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.